You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So I'll give our attention to the reading of God's Word. In connection with Lord's Day 35, we have two readings, one from the Old and one from the New Testament. Let's turn now to 1 Kings 12, 25-33 to begin with. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites, and went up to the altar to make offerings. Then we go to the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 21. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market! His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So now read together Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism, dealing with the second commandment. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. 
No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, he was an important and influential leader in the church. Jerry was basically an elder. In fact, we would say that he was the chairman of the consistory. When Jerry spoke, people listened and they followed his lead. And as he looked around at the ecclesiastical scene, it became apparent that there was competition. There was another church down the road where most of Jerry's people used to go. Some of them would likely go back if given half a chance. He had to do something. He had to do something to keep the people and also to preserve his power and his influence. Now, Jerry had specific instructions on how the church was to be run and how God was to be worshipped. But Jerry set all of that aside. He decided to do things his own way. He decided to make things easier for the people. Rather than follow God's instructions, Jerry decided that the church could worship the way he wanted it to. Now that story could be taking place in any number of churches in North America today, but it's actually an old story. It took place nearly 3,000 years ago. Jeroboam did not become the king of the northern tribes by accident. Because of his idolatry, Solomon was judged and told that one of his servants would rule most of the tribes in the coming generation. Solomon's son Rehoboam was left with the one tribe of Judah, and Jeroboam became king of the ten northern tribes. God promised Jeroboam that he would be the king. God also promised Jeroboam that he would be blessed as king if he would follow God's ways. However, when Jeroboam finally became king, all of that was forgotten. Even though God had commanded that his people worship at the temple in a specified place, at specified times, in a specified way, Jeroboam decided that the ten tribes had to be kept away from Jerusalem. And so he set up centers for worship, one at Dan and the other at Bethel. He knew that people like visual helps in worship. Nobody ever objects to that. So he made two golden calves to represent God. One for Dan and one for Bethel. And he went beyond that. He set up shrines in high places. Shrines, we understand, to be places where idol worship took place. So he was mixing the worship of God with, with the worship of idols. He introduced priests who were not from the tribe of Levi. And then he set aside all the dates and times that God had commanded, and he introduced his own. Jeroboam created his own way of worshiping God. Now, note very well that Jeroboam didn't abandon God. He hadn't started worshiping Molech or Baal instead of Yahweh, the one true God. Yahweh was still to be worshiped. In other words, this was not a sin against the first commandment. The first commandment tells us that we are to worship the one only true God. But the second commandment tells us how he is to be worshipped. 
That's where Jeroboam went off the rails. He didn't want to worship God in God's way, the way described in the Bible. Instead, he followed the way of self-willed worship. He did what was right in his own eyes. Rather than God-willed worship, Jeroboam chose self-willed worship. That's what the second commandment is addressing. The second commandment guides our worship and tells us that we are to worship God only in the way that he is commanded in his word. We call that the regulative principle of worship. We are to worship God only as he is commanded in his word, not adding or taking away anything. This regulative principle of worship is what we find in Lord's Day 35, a faithful summary of what the Bible says about worship in God's way. So this afternoon, we're going to consider how the second commandment directs the proper worship of God. And we're going to look at the perfect obedience to this commandment, perfect reasons for this commandment, and then finally the perfect end of this commandment. Now going back to Jeroboam for a moment, we see a depressing picture there, a depressing picture of failure. A king, a king who decided to go his own way when it came to God's worship. And that failure was only perpetuated through the generations. It became a a poison that just went down through the years. And in fact, to this very day, believers often fail. They continue to fail to worship God only in the manner commanded in His Word. Believers sometimes want to have visual helps for worshiping God. Now, sure, God has given us visual helps in the sacraments. They are The the sacraments are sort of a, a visual preaching of the gospel. But many are not content with that. They want more. And so they want to introduce other visual elements into worship. But we don't do that, do we? Not so quick. Before we get puffed up, before we get prideful, we need to remember that it's not just the external things that God is interested in when it comes to His worship, or anything for that matter. We could have all the biblical elements of worship in place, not adding or taking away anything, and we could still be breaking the second commandment. The second commandment not only addresses our outward actions, the external things, it also addresses our hearts. As we worship Him each Sunday, as we gather here, how many of us are not often distracted? Even maybe at this moment, distracted. Thinking about other things than, rather than about the God who has come down to meet us in this place. It's an amazing thought if you think about it. We're distracted so many times. As we gather each Sunday, it's easy, just too easy, to sing the Psalms and hymns mechanically. Think of the Apostles' Creed, for instance. Sometimes we can sing that mechanically without actually thinking that what we're singing is all that is promised us in the Gospel. Rejoicing in that. We can do the singing mechanically without worshiping God from the heart. Or take the offerings. How many of us are really worshiping God at that moment? The offering, too, is part of our worship. 
which is quite often why I, why I will introduce the offering by saying you may now worship God with your offerings. It's part of our worship. But many treat it as an opportunity for a few moments of conversation. And then there's prayer. Prayer is hard. Corporate prayer is even harder. It's difficult. There's no doubt about it. It's hard to pray along with the minister and not have your mind drift down all kinds of rabbit trails, thinking about this and thinking about that. We have human weakness to contend with. We have sinful hearts. We don't worship God perfectly, do we? Not even close. So when we talk about perfect obedience to the second commandment, we can't look at ourselves. Jeroboam, we can, we can point a finger at Jeroboam, we can say he didn't have perfect obedience to the second commandment. But then, look in the mirror, brothers and sisters, because we certainly don't either. And why do I bring this up? To make us down? Depressed? No, not at all. Rather, whenever we think about the law of God, whenever we look into that mirror, we should humbly recognize our deep need and then immediately go to Christ. We should immediately flee to the Gospel, to Jesus. We look to Him for His perfect satisfaction. We look to Christ as the One who has paid for all our sins. Every single sin is covered by His suffering and death, including our sins against the Second Commandment and also my sins against the Second Commandment. But we also look not only to His perfect satisfaction, we also look to His perfect obedience to the law of God. He perfectly kept the law of God. And He did that also for us and in our place. Because we can't. Now consider what we read from John 2. In the first place, notice that the Lord Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover. God's law commanded that His people were to do this. God said it, and Jesus did it. When the Lord Jesus worshipped, He worshipped God in exactly the way that God had commanded in His Word. Precisely. Now you may hear that and think, well, that's interesting. But loved ones, that's not just interesting. That's not just an interesting piece of trivia. The Bible teaches in passages like Romans 5.19 that all of Christ's obedience is imputed to us. It is credited to our account. The Belgic Confession summarizes this biblical teaching when it, it says in Article 23, His obedience is ours when we believe in Him. Isn't that wonderful? His obedience is ours when we believe in Him. Christ was obedient to the second commandment for us. And this is part of the gospel. Now keep that in mind as we look further at what happens in John 2. God had said clearly in the Old Testament that He was to be worshipped in a holy manner. It was said in places like Psalm 96, which we sang a few moments ago. And drawing on the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews reminds us that God is to be worshipped acceptably with reverence and awe. Everything 
in public worship. Everything connected with public worship has to conform with that teaching. There can be no casualness, no flippancy, no worldliness introduced into divine worship. It doesn't fit. It doesn't belong. It doesn't please God. That's exactly what had happened at the temple in Jesus' day. The temple courts, part of the temple, had been turned into a marketplace. Sure, everything that was for sale and all the business taking place there was related to the worship of God. And that the people involved with it could have rationalized it. Maybe they even did rationalize it by saying that their commercial enterprise was really a ministry. We're providing a necessary service. Providing animals for the sacrificers. Providing uh, currency exchange. But the fact was that the Jews had profaned the worship of God by introducing business to the temple, to a place where business had no place. They had made the house of God into a shopping mall. They were not worshiping God in the manner commanded in His Word. And then the Son of God visits the temple. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He gets upset. He gets upset with the desecration of his father's house. Jesus, imagine that. He makes a whip. And he starts chasing people with his whip. Chasing people out of the temple. He's angry. He turns the tables over, sending money flying everywhere. He gets mad and he shouts, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market! He's indignant. And here too, loved ones, look to Jesus, be afraid, but also stand in awe. Here's the Son of God, the obedient Son who cleans up His Father's house. His Father's house had been trashed and cheapened. The worship of His Father had been polluted by these businessmen. What does he do about it? He does the right thing. He's zealous for God's house and for the proper worship of God. And keep in mind once again, loved ones, that this is not trivia. This is something that he did also for you and for me. We should be the ones to be so zealous for God's worship. But so often we're not. But fix your eyes on Christ and see a Savior who has paid for all your sins and also lived the perfect life for you. What a wonderful Gospel. What a wonderful Savior. Now don't stop there. We have to go on. Because we have union with this Savior through faith in the Holy Spirit. We are joined to Him. He is the vine and we are the branches. The branches that are to bear fruit. Thankfulness is to be the fruit. Love for the Savior. Love for the God who has redeemed us is to be the fruit. That thankfulness and love, well, it manifests itself in certain ways. And one of the ways it manifests itself is a willing eagerness to follow God's Word. 
Because we are in Christ, because we love Christ, because we love not only the Son, but also the Father and the Holy Spirit, because we're thankful, we want to worship God, not in just any old way. We want to worship Him with precision, with care. We want to worship Him carefully in no other way than what He has commanded in His Word. And so that means, first of all, that we endeavor to worship God from the heart. Fixing our attention on Him as we worship each Sunday. What does that mean exactly? Well, first of all, it means participating. For the younger brothers and sisters, for the boys and girls, that means opening the book of praise to sing along, if you know how to read. It means saying the votum. You guys know what the votum is, boys and girls? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, we say that together as a congregation. And you boys and girls can say it with us. You should say it with us. And saying the Amen, too. We say the Amen after the salutation and the benediction, at the beginning and at the end. Now, for all of us, whether we're young or old, doesn't matter what age we are, it means being engaged with what we're, we're singing, with what we're reading, with what we're praying. Of course, listening to the sermon also. Thinking about these things, worshiping God together through them. Though it's sometimes difficult, we have to resist the temptation to go on worship autopilot when we come to church on Sunday. You know how that happens, right? You come to church and you just go through the motions and you leave here and it's like nothing happened because you were just on autopilot going through everything without really thinking and being engaged in any meaningful way. It's a temptation. Resisting that temptation and fighting complacency and laziness in worship is a fruit of our being in Christ. Is a fruit of our constantly looking to Christ. Our being united to Him through our faith and the Holy Spirit. And of course, our union with Christ also means that we would never dream of introducing something into our worship, into our public worship services, that has not been commanded by God. For instance, God has commanded the preaching of His Word. According to Scripture, preaching is an authoritative proclamation of God's Word by a man ordained by God. So we would never even consider substituting a dramatic movie for preaching. We would never consider adding some kind of video presentation as a supplement to preaching. After all, as the Catechism rightly says, God does not want His people to be taught through images, but through the living preaching of His Word. Through the Word. We take that seriously. We don't add and we don't take away from that. It also means that we would keep everything out of our worship which would cheapen it, which would make us lose the proper biblical sense of God's transcendence and His majesty. Whether in our music, in our dress and deportment, or even in our church architecture, and everything, we want to make it clear that we worship God with reverence and awe. God is majestic, transcendent, holy, 
we take His majesty, His holiness, His transcendence very seriously. We're not casual and flippant about God and our relationship to Him. Oh yes, He is our Father, and He's near to us, and He, he, he does love us dearly. But we are still His children, looking up to our Father, and we still respect Him, and we honor Him. And that respect and that honor have to be clearly expressed in everything connected with our worship. All that, too, is a a fruit of our redemption. Fruit of our union with Christ through faith. Now, let's also briefly consider a couple of the perfect reasons for the second commandment. God abhors all self-willed worship and wants to be worshipped His way. Why? Why? Well, first of all, we're speaking about the worship of God. And worship has to do with relationship. We have a relationship with God. This is the the covenant of grace. And it's important to remember who is who in the covenant. God initiates the covenant of grace. God sustains the covenant of grace. God fulfills the covenant of grace. In our relationship with Him, God sets the agenda. God alone knows what is pleasing to Him. God alone knows what is most suitable to Him. God alone knows how He wants to be worshipped. And we can't presume to know what God wants apart from His Word. So that's the first reason. And so I can think of what happens when people don't pay attention to God's Word and what it says about worship. Think of what happens when people think that if the Bible doesn't say anything against it, then we can go ahead and do it. That's the the common way of thinking about worship in North America. If the Bible doesn't say anything against it, we can go ahead and do it. Well, when that happens, let me put it to you bluntly, what ends up, what results is a lot of silliness. There's a lot of silliness that happens out there in North American Christianity, and it's all because the second commandment is ignored when it comes to worship. Now, all kinds of examples are readily at hand. I, I could pull any number of examples out, but I don't think it would be profitable for us to spend any time going through them. Let's just be aware, loved ones. Let's just be aware that the second commandment gives congregations a much-needed protection against human innovations and creativity. We don't need innovations and creativity in worship. What we need is faithfulness to the Word of God. And we can be thankful for our catechism, which gives us clear scriptural teaching on this point. And finally, brothers and sisters, let's consider the perfect end of the second commandment. Now, by end, I mean the design or the purpose of this commandment. And first and foremost has to be the glory of God. God knows best what is pleasing to Himself. And what is best pleasing to God also will be the most glorifying to God. When we worship God in His way, not turning to the right hand or to the left, not adding or taking away, He receives the honor and praise He deserves. We can also think here of what we confess in Lord's Day 32. There we confess that our sanctification is Christ's work in us. 
as Christ works in us with His Word and Spirit, as we live out of our union with Him, there are three things that result. The first one is basically what I just mentioned. Thankfulness to God. Praise for Him. Glory to God. God is made much of. The second is that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. And as I mentioned earlier, what unites us to Christ is true faith. As we see ourselves wanting to worship God in His way, in the way taught in the Bible, we're assured that we truly are God's children. God's children love their Father. And they want to obey Him. Last of all, third, there's an evangelistic end. That through our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. That's also part of the design or the purpose of the second commandment. Now, this is an interesting point because so much of what is done in worship today in North America supposedly has the same aim. Many churches have seeker-sensitive philosophies guiding what they do in worship. They want to make seekers feel at home. They want to win people for Christ, which in itself is, is a good thing. But they make compromises and they get rid of things that might be offensive to unchurched people. So, for instance, definitely no reading of the law of God, no difficult songs, and probably no offerings. Offerings can be easily misunderstood. Loved ones, compromise and accommodation is not the biblical way to win our neighbors for Christ. We confess that we win our neighbors for Christ through good works. And good works are those which are done out of true faith and in accordance with the law of God. In accordance with the law of God. That includes the second commandment. When we seek to conform our worship to the Word of God, that is a good work. And God will use that by His grace and by His Spirit to win our neighbors for Christ. When our neighbors see us zealous to worship God in the manner commanded in His Word, what do they see? Well, they get a clear sense that we love God that we respect Him, that we put God and His Word above everything else. And that undoubtedly will make unbelievers uncomfortable. That may also make non-reformed Christians uncomfortable. But it's not about how comfortable we are in the presence of God in worship. It's not about being comfortable. That's not what's important here. Rather, it's about God. And His Word. Following Him because our Lord Jesus followed Him. And we're thankful for that. And we love God for that. And God will use that to draw His own to Himself. We can't expect unbelievers to be impressed with people who put God first in everything. Put God's Word first. But the Holy Spirit works miracles. He's the miracle worker. And His greatest miracle is a miracle that still takes place today over and over again. A wonderful miracle. He softens hardened hearts. He opens blind eyes. Through His sovereign work, the elect hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and they come. 
Results belong to Him. Our calling is simply to follow His path, follow His word. And so, loved ones, worship is a crucially important part of our lives. And because it's so important, God has given two commandments to deal with worship. He's given one commandment to tell us who we are to worship. Him, of course. And He's also given us another one of the Ten Commandments to teach us how to worship. By His grace. Let's take those commandments seriously. And in so doing, honor and glorify the God of our salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the covenant of grace. We thank You that through this covenant, we have a wonderful relationship with You. And in this relationship, we confess with joy that You are everything. Help us with Your Spirit. Help us with Your Word to love You, thank You, and worship You only in the manner commanded in Your Word. For the sake of Christ, would you please forgive us all our failures and weaknesses in this regard? Please impute to us all of his perfect righteousness and holiness, all of his merits. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you for perfectly keeping this commandment for us. Help us with your spirit to live out of our union with you. Help us, Lord God please and honor you with our worship. You are truly worthy of all adoration, now and forevermore. We pray in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.